Well, today what we're doing is we're starting this new series called Convinced. And every one of us trusts in something. Uh, some trust in ourselves, some trust in God, some trust in science, some trust in close friends. But all of us here, we trust in, in all sorts of things that, yes, I said science. Did he say science? I said science. That's a quote right out of a movie, isn't it? It's a Nacho Libre quote. Somehow, Nacho Libre always works its way into my messages. <laughs> Some, and I won't say it like he said it in the movie. I'll just, we'll just move on. But the way that we live our life, or our lives, is based on the things in which we become convinced of. There are things that we believe with just our head. There's information that we think, yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true. And we take information in. But we just believe some things in our head. But then there are some things that we believe with all of our being. And those things that we believe with all of our being, then we would say, those are our convictions. Those are our convictions. Here's uh, the word conviction. If you look it up in the definition, you'd find that it means this. Um, law, the act of proving that a person is guilty of a crime in a court of law. It can also mean this, a strong belief or opinion. Really, that's, these next two definitions are the ones we're um, going to be talking about in this series. It's a strong belief or an opinion. It's the feeling of being sure that what you believe or say is true. Those are our convictions. You, you have some deep convictions some things that you trust and lean on. And so a conviction is this. And this is at the top of your listening guide. A conviction is a belief that you're willing to pay a high price for. You can identify your convictions by looking at what you do with your time. Like if you look at your calendar, it tells you something about your convictions. If you look at how you spent your time, if you look at how you spent your money, if you look at your online you know, bank account history, you can see, or your credit card history, you can see, you know, there's some convictions that start showing up, some things that we um, are paying a high price for. It's hard to talk about paying high price because now it's after Christmas, and so, you're, you know, many are paying things off from what we paid a high price for. But our convictions, we can identify those by looking at what we sacrifice for, those things that we believe with all of our being. When I was in college and really began wrestling with spiritual matters, um, began digging into the scripture and reading it for myself and really reading it to understand what it had to say and what, how would I get that in my life. And as I began reading, I began discussing it with friends, classmates, uh, professors, and I would wrestle with what God had to say in the Bible. And then beyond wrestling, I would try to put those things into practice. And at, the more I put things into practice, and if you followed a similar path of investigating your faith, the more you put things into practice, the more things get firmed up inside of you. And my experience in walking with God over the years has really strengthened my convictions. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, we really want to encourage you to investigate what does it really mean to follow Christ. If you're investigating that, get into the Bible. Dig into the Bible. Begin to talk about it, wrestle with it, talk with others about it, and really try to put some of those things into practice. Um, last week, I spoke about imitating the right people. And as we looked at what does it mean to begin the new year? We talked about in Hebrews chapter 13 how we're to imitate two groups of people if we really want to grow. The first group is leaders, people who have lives that have outcomes. You can already kind of see outcomes in their lives. They're worth imitating, Hebrews 13 says. Hebrews 11 says that we also have these heroes, and we should imitate heroes who have died and finished well. Uh, the heroes, they, they can't damage their reputation any longer like the rest of us, you know. 
we, we have this week ahead of us. But the heroes are dead. One of the benefits of reading about those heroes is, yeah, their reputation is kind of, it's, it's sealed in history and, and their, lives are, their, you know, their lives are over. Uh, but I heard a buzz uh, about some people taking seriously the next step, the challenge to read a Christian biography this year. And we gave out a list of, of Christian biographies that we recommended. If you didn't get that, let us know. We can, we can shoot that over to you. But today what I want to do is I want to kind of continue on with that idea of, of heroes and people who have made an impact with their life that we can learn from. And so I want to look at something that I brought up last week, the story of a man um, who I introduced, his name is William Wilberforce, and his convictions have impacted our world. Um, here's the book cover again, William Wilberforce. This is the book, Amazing Grace. He's the one man most responsible for abolishing the African slave trade in England. This is a picture of, of, uh, this is a picture of him. Eric Metaxas wrote this biography, very uh, well done. It draws you in the way he wrote it. You could also watch the movie Amazing Grace. It was released in 2007 if you wanted to learn about William Wilberforce's life. Uh, here's a map. The British slave trade in the late 1700s when Wilberforce was actively fighting to abolish the slave trade, um, every day through the slave trade there was legally being carried thousands of, of slaves from Africa to British colonies in the West Indies. And so you can kind of see the flow from the African coast to these different places. And in that period of time between 16 and 15, 1860, approximately 10 to 15 million enslaved people were transported from the coast of Africa to these different places. And from the opening scene of the movie Amazing Grace about the life of William Wilberforce, um, we see this quote. This comes up. This is the first scene in the movie. It says this. It says, Great Britain was the mightiest superpower on earth at that time, and its empire was built on the back of slaves. At that time, the slave trade was considered acceptable by all but a few. And so um, during Wilberforce's life, it was just, this was just a part of um, the economy. This was a part, and, and it was considered acceptable. But African slavery remains one of the worst stains on human history. When we pause to think about this, it, and, and we kind of let this sink in, 10 to 15 million people sold as slaves, it's just unthinkable to, to understand how this was considered acceptable by all, you know, all but a few. People would be humiliated, they would be held in horrible conditions. Um, you, we, we've seen pictures like this. If you went through, probably in your history course, um, you see pictures of, of the slave trade and, and how people would be um, treated like animals and branded and sold and beaten. Many died just in the transportation from the African coast to these different places. Many didn't make it. They would, someone would say half people died just in the transport. But entire economies were believed to be dependent on, the, on slavery. And so that is why, that explains some of why this was considered acceptable. Um, doesn't justify it, but that's the, the reasoning that people had. It was so deeply entrenched in America that it required the Civil War to end it. Uh, 618,000 men died in the Civil War. Here's a picture of the you know, painting of Battle of Gettysburg. Um, I got a chance to walk through um, the battlefields in Gettysburg about 10 years ago. And 
Gettysburg, many would say, was the turning point. The battle here was the turning point in the Civil War. And so, but in, you know, here in, in America, um, it, it culminated in this major war. But in contrast to that, 70 years before Gettysburg, Wilberforce, he led the charge against slavery in the British Empire, and he brought it down through legislation. So he was a member of parliament. And here's a picture from the movie, Amazing Grace, giving a speech in parliament. He didn't start out with these deep convictions, though, but he, he ended. And through his time in parliament, he made a huge impact on, on our world, on their world, but it really has flowed into our world. Now, there's still a problem in the world with slavery, but he, he didn't start out with this um, sense that this needed to, to be abolished. He was born into a family of real privilege. It, his family provided him a life of wealth and extravagance. His father died when he was really young. His father died when he was eight years old. Then when he was ten years old, his mother got really sick, and so she sent him to, to be raised by his aunt Hannah and his uncle. And so he was raised by his aunt and uncle. And while he was being raised by them, these, this aunt and uncle were committed Christians. And his mother must have known this, but she didn't know how committed they really were. They were um, a part of a group known as the Methodists, which were um, people who, this was, you know, you may have heard the term Methodist. It's a denomination of, of, of Christian churches today. Um, but in the Church of England that time, or in Europe at that time, the church was struggling. It was very dead, and it had no power. And so the state church, was very, it was very lifeless. People weren't really getting into the scripture. They weren't living out their faith. It was more just something you did as part of society. And it was, especially for the upper class, it was very, you just didn't, it was very important how you looked and appeared before other people. And so, um, well, Wilberforce, he goes and he's shipped to this aunt and uncle, and these are some committed Christians. They're part of a group who was really taking their faith seriously. And so he begins to be introduced to their circle of friends, committed Christian friends. He also met um, Pastor John Newton at, at that time, one of their friends. He was a, a local pastor. And John Newton, he was a former slave ship captain who had converted to Christianity. And he heavily influenced William, young William Wilberforce's thinking at that early age. Um, as soon as his mom and his grandmother realized what was going on and that, they're, uh, you know, that he was being influenced to take Christ and the Bible seriously, um, they brought him home. They would have none of that. Isn't that interesting? They didn't want him to grow in, in, in faith. They didn't want him to grow in practice. They would have none of that. And so he just he put some distance. That put some distance between his, his, um, his budding faith. And he just kind of went through the teen years. Again, he had a lot of affluence because of the family he was in. So he attended Cambridge where he became close friends with the future prime minister. And at age 21, William Wilberforce, he was a very gifted speaker. He was elected to be a member of parliament. He was 21 years old. This is in 1780. And in that time, the wealthy British folks would, would travel from England to the French Riviera, and they would just wine and dine and enjoy um, the life of luxury. But on one of those trips, he traveled with one of his friends who began a discussion about Christianity. And they would discuss Christianity and the Bible. They actually brought with them um, a copy of the New Testament. And they began to pour over it and get into it and wrestle with it. And both of the men in, in their discussion, they were marked by this dialogue as they were discussing how life really works and what God really thinks. 
and Wilberforce, he was gripped by the need to really investigate the scripture for himself. So he began to dig in. And during that time, as he's wrestling with what the Bible actually said, here's what he wrote. This is a record of his diary. What madness is this course I am pursuing? He's like, I'm on this wild course. I believe, though, all the great truths of the Christian religion, but I'm not acting as though I did. You see, he started thinking, well, I I, I think this stuff is true. I believe this stuff is true, yet I'm living a life that's very different. I'm not standing up for the right things. I'm not living out these, what I believe to be growing convictions. And not long after writing this, he he became convinced that the Bible was true, and he realized he'd fallen way short of what God wanted for his life. And he began to remember some of the things that were planted in him as a little boy, meeting some real Christians. And so he was having this raging battle inside of, what, what should I do? Who should I talk to about it? And so he goes and he finds Pastor John Newton, the same pastor that he met when he was a, was a kid. And Newton helped him sort some things out, began to invest some time in him. And Wilberforce first thought, okay, if I'm going to get serious about walking with Christ, then I need to leave politics and you know, my role as a member of parliament. I'm going to leave this. And I'm going to devote my life to a Christian service. And I'm going to live in, in solitude. And, and Newton talked him out of it. He said, look, God's already placed you in this specific place for this time. And he convinced him that God's aim is to use him for his purposes right there. And so Wilberforce, he, as a member of parliament, began to grow in his faith. He became a regular attender of John Newton's church and also a visitor in his home. They dug into the scripture together. Newton helped him get established in the Bible, in, in prayer, in Bible study. He would recommend books to read. He would tell him, hey, go listen to this speaker who's in town. And um, as he was grounded more and more in his faith, Wilberforce began to see that slavery needed to be abolished. He, he could see what was going on. And he was just, the more he read, the more he met um, people who had been enslaved, the more he was convinced that he, he needed to make a difference and stand up for this. And so he, prevented, he presented the very first slave bill in 1791. It was defeated. And then he started working harder at getting the message out to abolish the slave trade. And initially when he presented it, it was just mocked at. People laughed at it. People made fun of him. Um, he ramped up, presented a second bill in 1796. It was defeated again by four votes. And then he got to a point where he was extremely discouraged and low. And I mentioned last week he was a man that just um, dealt with a uh, plaguing medical condition that just made it almost unbearable for him to live. And so he dealt with that all the while knowing, I need to do something about this. And But he got to a point where he was ready to give up. And so Newton, that pastor invested in him, urged him in a letter to not give up. And here's what the end of the letter says. John Newton wrote, but I would leave a more favorable impression upon your mind before I conclude. The Lord reigns. He has all hearts in his hands. He is carrying on his will, or I'm sorry, he is carrying on his great designs in a straight line, and nothing can obstruct them. You see, when you get convinced about that truth, then life takes on a whole new meaning. That God is sovereign, he's in charge, he's working through this. And so Wilberforce continued. He was convinced and he just kept persevering for 16 years in the fight against, in the fight in Parliament against slavery. Finally, in 1807, with a vote of 283 to 16, um, the slave trade was abolished. We want to show you a clip here. This is a clip from one the from the movie Amazing Grace, 
and when the vote is read, and then there's a speech given by another man about the convictions that are displayed in this man, William Wilberforce. And so uh, let's take a look at this. On the Home and Foreign Slave Trade Act, the unamended bill calling for the abolition of the slave trade throughout the entire British Empire. Nose to the left, 16. Eyes to the right, 283. Abolition of the slave trade to be passed. Noblesse oh, oblige. What does that mean? It means no nobility obliges me to recognize the virtue of an exceptional commoner. speak of great men, they think of men like Napoleon, men of violence. Rarely do they think of peaceful men. But contrast the reception they'll receive when they return home from their battles. Napoleon will arrive in pomp and in power, a man who's achieved the very summit of earthly ambition. And yet his dreams will be haunted by the oppressions of war. William Wilberforce, however, will return to his family, lay his head on his pillow, and remember, the slave trade is no more. initially, and I, I'd encourage you to watch this movie or, or read the biography or listen to the biography. Initially, members of Parliament just, again, they mocked him when he presented these bills. But by this time, 16 years later, there was, whether or not they agreed with him on everything, his convictions had won them over and persuaded them to cast a vote for what was right. <clears throat> Our convictions make a huge, huge difference. The things that we're willing to pay a high price for now, it took 26 years after this vote to abolish the, the slave trade. It still took 26 years before slavery was abolished in, in England. And 
Uh, it was July 26, 1833. Three, day, three days after uh, slavery was abolished, he died. Wilberforce died. And, and then a year, almost a year to his um, death, 800,000 slaves were freed. And so look at this quote. It says, it was more than a great event in African or British history. It was one of the greatest events in the history of mankind. This, uh, this paved the way for the abolitionist movement in our country and in, in other places. Now, slavery is still a problem. Um, I was asking my mom for some recent stats. She said that 30 million people are enslaved today still. And so there's, there's clearly still a problem. Um, but people who are convinced of the right things, they make, they make an impact on their world. They make an impact in their family, among their friends, among their community, in the world at large. This is why getting convinced is so important, by building convictions is so important. Now, in the scripture, we find a few things out about um, the life of Paul and the life of Timothy and their convictions. I want to read you some passages here. Living convinced gives your life a bedrock. Look at what Paul writes to Timothy. Paul, he's this radical convert to Christianity in the first century. He's the primary pioneer of our faith to the non-Jewish world. Look at how he describes the heart of his own convictions. He's, he's in, in prison, and he's writing this letter to Timothy. Now, he is, he's in prison, so it's willing for him to... He's, it's worth paying a price for what he's um, believing to be true. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony, testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy was one of few people of Paul's associates and friends who were willing to endure suffering as well. A lot of people, as soon as persecution hit them personally, would scatter and flee and abandon Paul and the faith. Verse 9 says, Who saved us? The power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. He's, he's kind of laying out his convictions. And then verse 12, which is why I suffer. He's like, the word suffering means to undergo painful experiences. Why else would we suffer but for real convictions? Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, he says, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He was fully confident in God. If you break that down, look at some of these statements. I know, he says, whom I have believed. Again, it's not just head information. It's not just information. But he's believing to the point that Paul is willing to put his entire life and stake it upon those beliefs. With his whole being. The word know here, the Greek word literally can mean to see. And so what he's saying is, He had grown to trust in God to the point that he was willing to suffer because he had seen God work. He had seen God come through over and over. It was worth it. And then he says, I'm convinced Paul and his direct experience with God solidified his confidence in him. And then he says, because of that, he knew that God is able to guard what had been entrusted. God is able. God has the power He makes it possible for us to live out our convictions. Paul just lays out his thoughts expressing this bold confidence in God. Now, it establishes a bedrock for our life, but also when we live convinced lives, 
Look at what it also does. It encourages others to find the same bedrock. It encourages others. And that's what happened in the story of William Wilberforce. Other people began to wrestle with his convictions because they saw a man who was convinced. Timothy, this man that received this letter from Paul that we're reading, Timothy's own faith and convictions were actually handed down to him. He had to choose them for himself, but his faith bore a family resemblance. Look at some of the, the verses here that Paul writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5, he, he writes of Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. You see, many had deserted Paul when the persecution started in the first century. And, but Timothy, he had a sincere faith. It ran deep in his veins. So he didn't abandon. Paul cites a sincere faith of, of Lois and Eunice. This is his, Timothy's mom, his grandma. Our lives can really mark the next generation. That's, that's one of the lessons we learn about convictions. Deep convictions can mark the next generation. Uh, my parents, they, they were the first generation of Christians in their family. And some of you are, are the first generation of Christians in your family. Or maybe you're the second generation of Christ followers in your family. And so because of that, you may be building brand new convictions. Your life can mark future generations. Paul tells Timothy this. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. He says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. He's like, keep going. Just like Newton was pre- encouraging Newton, or Wilberforce to press on, Paul saying, Timothy, keep going. Continue in what you've learned. You firmly believed it. Think about those who you learned it from. He's learned from Paul. He's learned from his mom, his grandmother. Our convictions can be contagious. And that really is the point about convictions is that it can, it can impact people. It impacts many others. Your life and your legacy can impact for long after you leave this planet. The convictions of others can be strengthened by your faith. People can almost draft strength off of your own convictions. They can draft off of your life and convictions. At the same time, or on the flip side of things, people may waffle in their convictions when we waffle in ours. And so you might be here this morning, and maybe some of your most recent blunders come to your mind. You're like, well, I haven't made a huge impact lately. Actually, I've made some mistakes lately. And you might feel like, well, I'm somewhat of a, a ball of uncertainty. Well, two, two people can encourage you. One is the Apostle Paul, who persecuted Christians before becoming a Christian and then making a huge impact. Blown it big time in his life before that, though. And then John Newton, the pastor who had influenced William Wilberforce. Those two men, Paul and John Newton, really, I think, encouraged me because of how God used their lives. Don't be discouraged by your mistakes, your failings, your sin. Learn from them, but it's not too late. That's the inspiring part of John Newton's story. Here's a picture of John Newton. He, this is the pastor who, who Wilberforce, as a young boy, and then later on when he got serious about walking with Christ, really discipled him and helped him grow. Now, John Newton's own story took place after many years of wild living. He basically had a conversion that even took kind of a, a lengthy process for him to get there. Uh, but he was raised to believe in God at a very early age. But again, it had, it had no life. His mom died at age six. And so he was sent to live on, the light, like live on the high seas and work on the ships. He was working on the slave ships. But while he was working on them, he himself was sold into slavery. 
And so he lands as a slave, and he's working, and his father sends for him, sends someone to go find him. So he's rescued out of slavery, and on his journey back to his father, he's on the ship that is about to sink. The ship has holes in it, it's falling apart, it's going down, and so he's calling out and crying out to God. And in the midst of that prayer, the cargo begins to shift and miraculously plugs the holes, and the ship doesn't go down, and all those people live. Well, you can imagine that made an impact on his life. He converts to Christianity, and once he um, converted, he wasn't um, even initially um, stopping some of the things he was doing, including um, captaining a slave ship. So he continued on in the slave trade himself. But after five years, I think it was, he he realized this has to stop. But this is one thing he writes near the end of his life. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I once was an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Because once he became convinced, then his faith in Christ changed his views. It changed his whole perspective especially regarding the value of all human life. He had a powerful ministry in London. He was one of only two evangelical Anglican priests who were actually trying to help people get grounded in their faith. And until his death, he just kept investing in people because he had himself experienced an amazing act of God's grace in in saving him. He's the one that writes and that wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton. Here's the hymn Amazing Grace. Tells about the bedrock of his life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. There was things he was, he was not seeing. God's reality, he was blind to God's reality. And then when God lifted those blinders, he, he began to see and feel deep, deep convictions. Um, he ended his life blind. It's interesting. Physically couldn't see the end of his life. But he could see spiritually. Take a look at his gravestone. This, this gravestone bears the epitaph, his self-penned epitaph. John Newton, clerk, once an, in, an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Near 16 years as curate of this parish and 28 years as rector of St. Mary Woolnough. We all have many failures but our convictions can actually carry us past our failures. That's my hope. My hope is that, is that my own children would remember me for my deep convictions. Our lives can have a tremendous impact on others. What will that look like for us? I want to invite our worship team to, to come back and join me on the stage. And I want to encourage you to, to begin reflecting on your own convictions. What, what, am I, what am I living for? Ask yourself that question. What would I? What is worth paying a high price for? As I examine what I'm, what I'm sacrificing for, what what is that? What do I need to firm up? What do I need to wrestle with? We're going to sing the song "Amazing Grace," and as we're singing this song, I encourage you to sing out, but also reflect on your convictions. Reflect on these issues that we've raised this morning, as we as we sing.